If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey folks, welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with my bestie. Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. Hi everyone. Happy end of the year. Happy end of the year. Let's let's just help let's gently show 2020 the door and maybe <laughs> send them with some part send 2020 out with some parting gifts and swag and you know a, a, a gentle pat on the back that they don't they need to do something else and not come back and visit because we're going to be dealing with 2021. (laughs) That's right. This is our last episode of 2020. It's episode 60. And I think you and I will probably take a little tiny, small hiatus. Oh yeah. To just reset a little bit with the new year, but it doesn't mean we aren't doing some fun things and have some collaborations um, in the works. Also, if, this episode drops on the 16th of December, which means this is your reminder. If you want to join Patreon on the 17th, we are doing a special Patreon holiday Zoom party just for our Patreon members. So, so not on not on the platform, not on um, oh, Get yep. Vocal, but on nope. Zoom so that we can all interact with each other. Yeah. So you will have um, a very short window to join if you haven't already to join our holiday party to show 2020 the door. Yes. Let's do that. (laughs) Um, Anything else going on before we get into our episode? Uh, What is, you know, we both, uh, we're both uh, worn out by this quarantining stuff. Like you, I got a a possible exposure, uh, which we're very in the agency I work with and the agency you work with, we're being very strict about it. Um, probably a little more than we need to, um, cause I double mask at work all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm on home, uh, homebound for another week, which is kind of cool. I have to say that the enormous, enormous agency I work for the IT team kind of did this unbelievable thing where we're working, with remotely with these virtual desktops that allow us to do everything, including um, some of the things that like we never thought we'd be able to do with our, our cases. So, right. But I'm worn out, like, like working at home and it's gotta be rough for everybody. Like this is, this is rough for everybody. I think so. Um, You know, you and I, before we went on, we're talking about just having a, a designated space, not necessarily in your home, but being able to get away to, 
a space. And fortunately, you know, you have another office where you do your private practice that you can sort of escape to where there's no one else there. Um, that's really important. And I don't know, I, I think it's a matter of, of balance and we'll see how much longer this is going to happen. And, uh, you know, hopefully vaccines get here and, and then we'll see still how employers are implementing work from home. Yeah. Supposedly, you know, research shows people are pretty productive, um, but you I and I are kind of thinking more of their mental wellness. I'm thinking of the mental wellness because of the stress. Otherwise, I think in a in an optimum situation where there was not this pandemic that people were dealing with. I mean, this is something that that we should have done a long time ago. There's no reason for people in in many aspects of work to have to do it. I think it's, I, I think that, I don't know if it's going to be a pleasant transition, but I do think that the U.S.'s experience of the pandemic is going to reshape aspects of our economy uh, just out of realization. I mean, Jack, what's the, what is um, the CEO for Twitter, Jack Dorsey? I think that's his name. Anyway, he was like one of the first ones to come out and say, why do we need offices? You know, my, my people are happy working at home and it makes their life easier. There's no commute. We're going to look at how we can do this. And I think a lot of other companies right. will. In fact, I mean, productivity for me working at home is difficult in that I tend to laser focus too much and I, I need to break my day up a little bit more. And it's, I'm very productive, but like I need like a break. Yeah. You know, you have a, I live in an apartment in a, a beautiful area, but you have a yard right. and you have your, your gym and recording studio. I mean, like you can sit by the pool and pretend you're somewhere else. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll make it work as we have been. So I was thinking today, like, oh, put time to put on another hoodie. I kind of like this hibernating in clothes all the time. Now that it's winter, I was actually very happy that uh, the pandemic started when it was good weather for us because I did like, that's what I did as I sat out um, side in the backyard and did my work day from there. But yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm okay with hibernating at this point. So, okay. Anyway, anyway, um, so we hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's taking care of themselves. Yeah, um, really do. You know, check in with us, like, let us know how you're doing. And, you know, there's tons of resources online. I mean, like the last thing I think anybody wants to do is be do doing more stuff in front of their computer. But there is some great stuff out there for taking care of yourself. Absolutely. So today we are bringing you something fun for our last episode of the year, something that we've kind of had on our list for a little bit. But we're going to be talking about Dexter, the real life Dexter and vigilantism. So we heard earlier this year that the show Dexter is returning. And we usually talk about entertainment at the end of our show. <laughs> We're going to kind of reverse that. And we have to talk about Dexter at the top. Uh, definitely some spoilers here. So if you guys have not watched it, uh, just fair warning, but you've had a lot of time to catch up on Dexter. But I'm sure most of our audience. Are I would think so. Yeah. Or if, if you haven't, then, you know, skip the next probably 15 to 20 minutes as we kind of go over. Yeah. The plot points. So when you and I met in 2008, I think, you know, Dexter started in 06. We were like right. so into the show when we met. Oh, yeah. I have a Dexter bobblehead that was sitting on my desk. 
Yep. Um, that was like, because like my, my friend Bob was one of the ones that highlighted or uh, not highlighted, greenlight, greenlit the show uh, right. on the network. And I just thought it was also just really different from anything you had seen on television. Yeah. And I don't think it was, I mean, here's the thing that I'll say that I'm critical about. It was not a consistent show. Like the first two and a half seasons just were off the charts good. And then it got weird and then it got not good. And then it got weirder, but overall I still thought it was really cool. Yeah. I remember you went to, like some event from Showtime and you were telling me like you got to go in different rooms and each room was themed like a Dexter room and a weeds room. Yeah. I was just like, Oh, I'm so jealous. That's so cool. It was really, yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting time in entertainment. Um, I mean, I was uh, clearly, I was already, in, you know, finishing grad school and stuff, but that was a time when premiere parties had a lot of money thrown at them. Like, hundreds of thousands of dollars and they don't do that anymore like that's just a thing that doesn't really happen but yeah you went into the weeds house the weeds living room and it was all the kind of delicious crap that you would eat if you were high like hostess snowballs just stacked in pyramids and like funky grilled cheeses out of all sorts of weirds it was totally delicious god it was good also a great show yeah wow and what was the dexter room like god i'm trying to remember now i like his kill room (laughs) i it wasn't the kill room but there i remember it was like there were a lot of skewers like i think it was like a lot of meat and skewers if i remember correctly yeah (laughs) so um a new season is in the works supposedly it's going to be a 10 episode season still on showtime probably fall of next year there have been no details, plot details, or cast info, except that Michael C. Hall, of course, is coming back. And I I found a quote from Showtime president Gary Levin, who said in a statement, we would only revisit this unique character if we could find a creative take that was truly worthy of, of, of the brilliant original series. Well, I'm happy to report that Clyde Phillips and Michael C. Hall have found it, and we can't wait to shoot it and show it to the world. So with that, I know you kind of said your take on it. Are you excited? I know people hated how it ended. What do you think? Do you think they can do it after all this time and bring it back? I got to say, I think Michael C. Hall is a brilliant actor. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of really great creative writing being done right now. I think it's we're entering into this next level of entertainment where all the media mediums are blending together. You know, there's no, there's very, there are people who are crossing over where it used to be you were an actor who did movies or you were an actor who did television. And now there's this like crossover, which I think is really kind of amazing uh, on a lot of levels. But if Michael has anything to do with it, it's going to be a great idea. Yeah. You know, I was just, the one thing that I thought that was, that disappointed me about the, the, about the end of the second season was you lost a lot of uh, Dexter's internal monologue. Like mm, that really was hard. to me him. Oh, this is when I'm supposed to feel this. This is what my dad told me. And they did a little of it, but they didn't do as much as they did like the first season where you were like, Oh, I don't have to guess what this is going on for this person. He's telling me what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the show ran for eight seasons between 2006 and 2013. So 
for people that just don't know, basically the premise is it's a serial killer who kills killers. Um, but the twist is that he's a blood spatter analyst with the Miami Metro PD. His thing is that he always saves a drop of blood on a blood slide from each of his victims. So he, before he kills them, he always cuts their cheek with a scalpel and saves a drop of blood. Um, but yeah, in the pilot episode, you get a good amount of information of why he is the way he is. Um, they don't necessarily show this scene in the the very first episode, but as a child, essentially his mother was murdered and he was found with his mother's dead body sitting in a pool of blood, covered in blood. And the police officer that responds to the call basically adopts him, becomes, you know, his foster father. And then yeah. sort of, and, and is in, dies like later, but is with him as a sort of a, a visual representation of an internalized object. Like it's not his ghost, but it's his, the internalization he has made of his dad giving him advice and chiding him or directing him in his. Right. Because his dad um, does catch him killing animals early um, and, and understands these urges inside of him and basically teaches him a code to sort of live by um, to to keep it in check when he can and appear normal to the world. Um, and what Dexter does with that is that he lets out that urge by killing the really bad people. That's it, it like, and that was one of the tagline. His dad said some people need to die or some people need to be killed. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I, there are a lot of flavors of picking up, um, even in that pilot episode, because I just rewatched it today, of him saying things like, I don't have feelings about anything. Or um, he says, like, talking about faking human interactions in the world, like even like sex doesn't interest him. His sister, he says, she really loves me. And if I were to love a person, I would love her back, you know, but he's like, eh, I don't know what that is. I don't have that feeling. <laughs> and he's just like fakes being a super charming guy. So it's, it's really a, a great show. I love it. I think the core cast of characters was always really oh, good. Absolutely. Um, Deb, like his sister, who's also a cop, simultaneously drives me crazy, but I love her character. Sergeant Dokes is just hilarious. And then the uh, the crime scene, one of the other crime scene guys, Masuka, is just also yeah. hilarious. But they also had over the course of seasons, you know, some really big guest stars, people that were, you know, maybe even other killers themselves. John Lithgow, um, Jimmy Smits, you know, a lot of big, it seems like Jimmy Smits was doing every big show back then. He was a guest in everything for a season. <laughs> yeah, his character was really annoying, actually. I mean, and not that he's not a great actor, but that character yeah. really annoyed me. But Colin Hanks was one. Yeah. Um, oh, God, what's the guy's name uh, from American Me? Oh, Edward James Almost. Edward James Almost, yeah. So they had, like, really their pick of great established actors and yet they also gave a lot of up-and-coming actors great uh, benefits in fact i think um the actress what's the actress names who played his sister um shoot it's around the top we're blanking out anyway she's great and but she had done only a couple of things before she had done this really great horror movie yep um called the exorcism of emily rose Oh, is that, think, did she do that one? She did one where she was like a reporter or something, and it was all like... Oh, Wreck. 
Wreck was, Rick? yeah, that was a remake of the French horror film that was Zombies, and that was really good. Mm-hmm. But she, um, in this Possession movie, it's actually based on a true story about a young woman with really severe schizophrenia and um, and a religious fixation and uh, how it was, you know, she was killed during the process of the, of the exorcism. Right. But, yeah, she was really great in that. Yeah, she's very good. So Dexter, the show is based on a series of books by author Jeff Lindsay. And there's eight books in the Dexter series. Uh, Those came out between 2004 and 2015. So he wrote another one even after the the series had ended. I had not read any of them. I read some descriptions. Um, It seems like it does not track with the show beyond maybe like the first one or two. Right. Right. Uh, which is great because I kind of feel like I want to go back and read them because they're they're much different in how the the story ebbs and flows. Yeah, you you get the opportunity for it to be a completely different experience. Like it, it's a whole different thing. You know, that's great. Right. It's yeah. kind of like watching reading The Shining versus watching The Shining movie. There you go. Yeah. Well, and I I'm excited. I'm genuinely excited for it. I'm sure it'll be done well, and I'll definitely be watching. Uh, I don't know this time next year. Hopefully not in quarantine. <laughs> Maybe we could be together talking about it. Yeah, hope so. So um, one of the things I want to I want to point out what you 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 I want to drill down on what you just said and make sure everybody listening picks up on this about what Dexter did so well was really cornering not all the not really all three of the dark triad, but hitting the major things that we know can cause such level of trauma that that then cause a personality disorder. So they don't really ever go into it. But like, if we were to, if we were to like get a file on this guy, Dexter, and let's do a, let's do a forensic profile on him. Well, he doesn't have an, a history of an injury that we know about, but he did ex- experience a, a, an extraordinary trauma at sure. a very young age. Right. And there may have been some trauma prior to that, that we're unaware of, but, when he starts exhibiting these tendencies like the killing of animals and the collecting, they're really great on the collecting, like the blood samples. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if that's how his dad discovers it is his dad finds his collection of trophy, you know, bits from the animals in the neighborhood or something. He finds a grave and the, and Dexter says, Oh, I killed that dog that was yapping so much. Um, because it was keeping mom up and mom's sick. And he's like, Dexter, there were a lot of bones there, not just one dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I have to say that, like, if I have one criticism of the series at that time is they had Michael C. Hall playing himself as a teenager or playing Dexter as a teenager, and it didn't work oh, at all. did at one point. I do yeah. remember that. He was wearing, the... like, a bad wig. I mean, he's a good actor, but it's like, no, dude, get, get a I... get a 16-year-old to play that. Don't. Try yeah, because they have like television. a they have like a ten year old and then like a thirteen year old and then I guess they just jumped to Michael yeah. C. Hall. After that. Yeah, it was weird. It was weird, but you know, there I don't know that I would um, call his character narcissistic in the traditional sense no. or in the Machiavellianism, but the psychopathy. Um, they really play that part up. So, I mean, um, that's something that they really didn't do was play up the narcissism at all, except, I mean, because it's more about just this inability to get emotions. And he has insight 
into the fact that he doesn't get it, which is one of the things that is really interesting. You know, when Park Dietz and Chris Mohandi and some other people that work, you know, in this area, um, they really like to examine or they like to um, emphasize that many of the killers that they interview look at when empathy is explained to them or when they have discussed, they see it as a weakness. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily see it as something that is, you know, beneficial in any way. They just see it as like, well, I don't have it and it makes people easier to be victims to me. So blah, blah, blah. But Dexter never really, they don't do that with him. They, He's curious about it. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. He's, he's curious, curious about it. And how do I ape these behaviors in order to get my needs met? So whatever yeah. his dad did was really good about sort of instilling that moral code. That's the big thing is the instilled. Um, is it, well, did they, I don't know if they call it a moral code, but it was the code, right? The code. Yeah. It, it's almost like harm reduction, right? Like, okay, this is what you are. I'm not going to turn you in or have them lock you up forever. So this is the path we're going to take. Right. <laughs> Which is twisted. And yes, um, I think because Dexter's missing those other two components of the dark triad, that's what makes him an extremely likable character, which is fine for fiction, right? Like, this is entertaining. This is something we can get behind. And then we start to sort of have feelings for him, not necessarily what he's doing, but he does come off as like being able to fake charming just well enough and, and to the people around him, except which is funny is Sergeant jokes, like is never having any of it. And he wonders in his inner dialogue, he's like, of all the cops I'm around, he's the one that knows I'm a fucking weirdo. <laughs> he right. just hasn't caught me yet. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a really great point. Yeah. So I, I think it's fascinating to open with an example from the media um, and we want to do a couple of things here because we want to give real life cases because there is a very famous case of an individual who is known as the real life Dexter and rightly so because he does his life dovetails in many ways with the motivations of that fictional character with some s- staggering differences. And what's fascinating is about this person, despite his high level of kills, is alive. He's about I think he's in his mid sixties right now in Brazil and a free man yep. because he served his time due to the legal restrictions there. And this is an individual who himself decided he would be a killer of killers. Ooh, let's hear about him. So his name is Pedro Rodriguez Filo. Uh, and he is a Brazilian man. He's his nickname is I'll, I'm going to massacre this, so I apologize. Pedrino Matador, which translates into Killer Petey. And um, it's known right now that there are at least 71 individuals that he's killed, but it's more likely that the majority of his crimes we'll never know about. There are probably, it is estimated there were at least several hundred wow. of uh, people that he killed. So, he, this is a young man who, like Dexter, came from a truly traumatic background, came from uh, a lot of violence in his home. And this is where, this is one thing that is so integral to the expression of psychopathy and many examples of killers that we see that are incarcerated is that he experienced a head wound in utero. So, due to a domestic violence episode, 
that his father perpetrated upon his mother, he had he was born with a head injury. Very interesting because yeah. we don't usually have that much information, although it is one of the things that like you and I, when we were working together and doing those evaluations for our forensic site, that was one of the things you always asked is like, were there any words in your, in your mom's pregnancy with you? Yeah. And it's interesting because nobody ever knows. Or everybody, I mean, I think out of the 50 I did for you guys, not one person knew if there was anything no, at all. Oh, yeah, they just kind of like, like shrugged their shoulders like, I don't know, you know? So he's in his 60s. He was probably born in what, the 50s? Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. You know, just I always like to think about crimes like that being reported and the time periods and all of that. That's great that we have that information, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting to look at now historically after this period of time. He's a, he is now uh, a born-again Christian. And he has led sort of the straight and narrow life. But at the time when his crimes were discovered, one of the analysts had described him as the perfect psychopath. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that he only at the beginning killed people that he thought, okay, let me, how should I phrase this? He had a reason for killing each person. They weren't, I'm going to go on a killing spree just because I feel like killing at the age of 13, he had a reason to kill these people. They were people who had wronged him. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So he, uh, at 13 years old, uh, he realized he had an urge to kill. And part of that was because he had become engaged in an argument with an older cousin. And they got into a fight and he beat his cousin nearly to death. Like, put him in the hospital with multiple, multiple injuries. And then the next year at 14, he became angry of the assistant mayor of the town of Athenas, which was adjacent to the village he grew up in because he felt that that assistant mayor had been unfair to his father and dismissed him unfairly. So Mm -hmm. he went and killed him. And then after that, he went and killed a school guard that he believed was a thief, but probably wasn't. And then another guard who was later proven to be the real thief in that area. So it's interesting. It's like, he's got a reason, but he's, he does have that sort of pre-adolescent impulsivity, not really thinking things through. Right. Right. Well, uh, he's got a re quote unquote reason. Um, but it's, it's like a one, uh, one solution for every problem. Right. So later on, he continues criminogenic activities and behaviors because he engages in burglaries, but he's not killing people. Although he then encounters in the, I think in the commission of one of the burglaries, it's not really clear in the history, but he encountered a drug dealer and felt that that person deserved to die. So he killed that person and then began a relationship with that drug dealer's girlfriend or wife. Okay. She later was killed really brutally by gang members. And this apparently was something that actually really pushed him into high kill mode. And in order to avenge her, he tortured severely and killed several people in order to find out everyone that was involved in the murder of Maria Aparecido Olympia. So he's basically, I mean, 
I, to draw a parallel, which I made a list at the end of this that we'll go over about examples in the media, this is what the Punisher does. Like the in the Marvel uh, TV show, the Punisher is an ex-soldier who, of course, witnesses family death, and he is completely indiscriminate about how he gets his information. He's just a human killing machine. Yeah. That, because, I mean, it's interesting how we do that in the media is we like... When it's written well, you identify with the person, and that's what the more successful movies about vigilantes have done, and there are a lot of I movies and TV it. shows about... It's basically also every superhero. It's like, you want to tell Bat, Batman, go get some ED, EMDR. Bruce, really. Get some talk <laughs> therapy. Exactly. Work through this trauma, please. Relax a little bit. So... uh now there's another stage. I think it's very interesting too. This this sort of major stretcher for Philo is losing, you know, this this woman he was in a relationship. We don't know anything about the quality of that relationship. But like you and I look at when we're doing evaluations, it does seem like it was a foundation for him. It was a support system for him. It was one of those points that in the about in the in the rubric we would give them a point. Okay, sure. he's in he's in a, a committed relationship. Right, stability. Stability. So his father then kills his biological mother. Not good. Okay. Clearly. Going his on. dad goes to jail and he arranges to get himself arrested, goes into the cell where his father is being uh, held and uh, murders him. Clever. Now, he not only murders him, he stabs him multiple times, cuts his chest open, cuts his heart out, and bites into it. Okay. So what are and your thoughts I, about that? Well, my, my thoughts are first like this man's walking around right now still. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's only the tip of the iceberg if he's got <laughs> hundreds out there. Yeah, but, probably. Uh, but that, I mean, the so for one thing we know about like... Uh, uh, the types of crimes, I mean, knifing someone to death, stabbing them multiple times really usually indicates like like a level of stimulation in regards to a personal relationship. Sure. You know, sure. people generally like if killers are going to kill, they kill, get it over with, get their deed done and get out. This was absolutely taking out violence against his dad in a very personal manner. And then I don't think you could take it anymore to an epic sort of movie level of violence than cutting out your father's heart and taking a bite out of it, taking a bite out of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that goes above and beyond just the, um, it, what you have to do to kill somebody. That's it. It's, it's very interesting. I I'm really intrigued by, um, you know, him sticking up for these women in his life and why he has to be the one to impose the punishment even after, you know, his father has gone to prison for it. It's really interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting because later when we talk about people that are actually researching this, and there are people that are researching this, there are various uh, psychologists and universities around the country that uh, investigate the motivations behind this kind of behavior, and it really is about this concrete sense of what is right and wrong and what is allowed. I did yeah. want to correct myself and made something. He did not get himself arrested. He visited his dad in jail oh, okay. with the intent to kill him and was able to stab him 22 times. Um, and this was uh, when he was 19. 
Oh, Jesus. So he was arrested right before he turned 20. And in, when they arrested him, they put him in the back of the police car with several other criminals who had just been arrested, including a rapist. And by the time law enforcement had rolled the car up to jail and they were opening the back doors to check on their suspects, um, Philo had already killed the rapist. <gasps> wow. So they put him, for whatever inexplicable reason, they put him in a low-level It's interesting, now that I'm saying that, like, Mm -hmm. why would they put him in a low-security yard? Because they wanted to. I I really think that they did, because he killed 47 inmates on that yard. Holy shit. 47 of his fellow inmates. And what a lot of the people who have written about this, and there are several really good YouTube documentaries about this. There's a lot of stuff on the Wikipedia page that links to some really good articles. And people that were interviewed said that they clearly, they felt that he clearly went after the people that he himself felt deserved retribution. So he's going through this process in his head, evaluating what matters and who needs to be taken out. So he is like Judge Dredd in his head. He is like Judge, judge, Jury, and Executioner. Executioner, Executioner. Took the word out of my mouth for sure. (laughs) Gosh. Oh, I wonder how it would have been if they put him in high level. Um, So high level security, meaning uh, he was in low level security, meaning there were probably people there convicted of lower level crimes. Well, I think it's, I don't want to be disparaging. I don't want to be disparaging to other countries, but what I do want to say is that yes, American prisons are not as good as, you know, Sweden and Austria, you know, like there are some very wildly progressive prisons for generally homogenized type of cultures that do well and rehabilitate people very well. All in all, America doesn't compare so well to those. However, when we compare the U.S. prison system as absolutely messed up as it is to some other countries in in the world, we're, we're doing really well. And, you know, there's a lot of gra- like one thing that you will not see in the US is someone being able to buy themselves into a lower level of security that does not happen and or if it, if I will say this if it and I had my ear to the ground for a lot of this stuff when I worked in the system if that did happen I never heard of it yeah. at all because it people tried it a lot like even um Phil oh god what's the guy's name the record producer Phil Spector. Phil Spector was on, you know, a medium to high security yard and, you know, had a lot of people being paid off on the yard to protect him, but Mm -hmm. he couldn't adjust his own level of yard. Um, So this could have been basically the guards making this decision to just sort of have it be like a a gladiator situation. Which does happen, which absolutely does happen. Um, So he... Uh, has we're estimating at least by this point he has a, a kill record of at least 100 people and he was sentenced originally to 128 years in prison uh, but with piling on all the charges his time was extended to 400 years but that is in contrast with Brazilian law which only allows 30 years so he ended up serving additional time for four of the murders 
that he committed behind the bars, but he was released in 2007. So it's interesting. The, the contrast here that I don't get is that he had managed to kill 47 people, yeah. but only four of the charges stuck. So, And if there's only a max of 30, then what does it matter how many people he's killing in there? Right. <laughs> right. <To him>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at the time, at, at age 63, before... Um, he had had this sort of big change in his life. He vowed that he would kill other criminals if he got the chance. I mean, he was just straight out said it. But then he had a religious conversion. And if he did, more power to him. Apparently, he's not gotten any more trouble. It's very interesting. The guy is like crazy prison fit. Like one of those where you see like, I mean, there's a there's a workout that's used called the Naked Warrior. It's very common in the prisons around the U.S., which is all calisthenics and body weight based. And these guys get completely jacked, like right. they get absolutely jacked. Um, and this this looks like uh, like PD had done a really good job. I mean, for a guy his age, he still looks kind of amazing. I wouldn't take a chance around him at all. But, right. How? Isn't that interesting? The commonality with the head wound, the right. trauma, uh, and just the disinhibition. Well, and um, yeah, a lot of disinhibition. I mean, way more than Dexter. But I, I guess they're making the parallel because he mostly took out other criminals. Right. Right. That makes sense. That makes right. sense. But I mean, like, I don't know if in, in the show Dexter, do they ever actually tell how many people he's killed? Oh, I know what we can do is we can think about the blood uh the blood samples remember it was a slide case a beautiful yep. antique wood slide case yep that he hid didn't he hide it in the, the air, conditioning air conditioning vent yes and it was almost full god i wonder how many of those that it holds it's got to yeah, be at least 50 that's got to be 22 rows of 25 in the well, in the pilot episode, it was almost full. Like, there were already a lot in there. Right. And remember, he had to destroy, at one point in the series, yeah. he had to destroy oh, all the evidence. And then he was so happy when he was starting over because he got yeah. a new case. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, have that. This, I have this beautiful minimalist print. I, I have of three different TV shows, but I have a Dexter one. And it's just like... You can hardly tell that it's it's just the slides of blood. It just looks like rows, like lines. And then the first one has a big red circle on it. I love that thing he's sitting in my office. That's <laughs> really cool. Um, okay, cool. Well, interesting. Um, so I am going to talk about someone else who I'm going to make the argument was actually the inspiration for Dexter. And I think we have some pretty good circumstantial evidence of that. So I think so, too. Uh, so Manuel Pardo, let me tell you about him. He was a serial killer in South Florida. He was active from January to April of 1986. And sometimes he worked with a partner, um, but there are many similarities between him and Dexter. So I don't have info on him as a child, but he did join the Navy and he won honors for his good conduct and his sharpshooting, and he was honorably discharged. And then he went into the police academy where he was the top recruit. He was essentially the valedictorian of his academy class. And he started as a police officer with the Florida Highway Patrol. However, he resigned while being investigated for writing up fake traffic tickets. So he resigns, admits that, and then 
later goes on to become a police officer for Sweetwater PD, which is in Miami-Dade County. So this is Dexter territory. And sounds like he didn't have a great moral compass for being a cop because he decides in January of 1985 to fly to the Bahamas to testify on behalf of a former cop buddy who was on trial there for drug smuggling, which is so interesting as I tell you the rest of his story. So Pardo claims falsely that he was a drug agent working with his buddy, the accused, which was a total lie. The authorities in the Bahamas figured out, they tell his department, and he ends up getting fired for this false information and trying to go testify on his buddy's behalf. So after his firing, that was early 1985, the next year early on, he begins a 92-day rampage of robberies and murder where he sometimes had a partner with him. And I don't mean like a, a cop partner, but sort of a partner in crime. And it was not this guy from the Bahamas either. So he sort of hooks up with this other guy. And what they would do is that they would set up drug deals and murder the people when they showed up to the drug deals. Sometimes people didn't show up to the drug deals. Like they would stand him up a couple times and he would go hunt them down and find them and murder them. So total he, during that that rampage um, also of robbing drug dealers and stealing their money and then killing them, he had killed six men, three women, and he kind of had the same attitude as Dexter and thinking that he was doing the world a favor by getting rid of them. But in the last robbery and murder, he had it. It seems like he accidentally shot himself in the foot. And what he did is he fled and he flew to New York, got some uh, medical help there and checked into a hotel. And um, some evidence in Florida was linked back to him and they found him in New York. So he was then arrested and tons of physical evidence linking him to the crimes. But he... It, Instead of blood slides, he would take photos of his victims. He would um, keep a huge collection of newspaper clippings about his victims and then write details of the murders down in his diary. He did go to trial. He decided to take the stand in his own defense, as as they all do, <laughs> um, against his, his attorney's pleads, of course. But he said when he was on the stand, quote, I am a soldier. I accomplished my mission and I humbly ask you to give me the glory of ending my life and not send me to spend the rest of my days in prison. Okay. So said, there's that narcissism that you were talking about oh, yeah. before. I think this guy has it. Um, he totally stands behind the fact that he was ridding the world of bad people involved in drug trafficking, which why the hell are you going to lie for your friend who is on trial for drug smuggling? It just, it's so weird. Maybe he was, um, he felt wronged by that somehow, or it, I don't know. I think that's really pivotal in all of this because it seems so counterintuitive to what he's doing, but I wonder if he was, he really thought his friend was innocent and was like, I'm really going to get the bad guys. I don't know, but later he. Mm, yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. He writes think, down. Yeah. Go ahead. Did you think something else? I I don't know. I mean, I like I need, feel like we need more information, but I you know somebody that's that grandiose. Yeah. You know, and I mean he's grandiose. 
He's narcissistic. He's already in law enforcement. He knows the consequences of lying. You know, there's just a lot of things here, you know, like why would you take that chance to lie for someone? I don't know. It's very interesting. Now now I'm really intrigued. I wonder if there's more information out there. I'll have to look into it. Yeah, I don't know. He he wrote down in his diaries and had some other statements where he said that he felt like he was in a war against those involved in drug trafficking and, and that's it. Meaning like only people in drug trafficking, he claimed that all nine victims were drug dealers who basically had no right to live and that he was doing society a favor. So he really sees himself as the vigilante that needed to clean up the streets with no rules once he was finally fired. Right. Right. You know, I, I wonder if the the fake uh, traffic tickets before, you know, if he's just sort of setting people up in way like that was his first sort of breach of being able. What do we call it? Um, behavioral drift. When we were talking about the counselors in our last episode of, OK, like here, this person's a dirtbag. Let me uh, write a fake traffic ticket for them or parking ticket or something like that. Like, exactly. Just little smidge of something right um and then gets in trouble gets fired and then is just like off the rails after that so he his wish was granted he spent 26 years on death row but he was executed in florida by lethal injection in 2012 and so during the time of his rampage the author of the dexter novels jeff Lindsay, was living in miami at this time that Manuel Pardo would have been in the headlines. Um, for me, I think it's very interesting that he, there is a character in the Dexter series, the one that Jimmy Smits plays, the assistant district attorney, and his name is Miguel Prado. So it's <laughs> that's pretty close. It's homage <laughs> to um, this character, and I don't know if that character's in the novels, um, but. You know, I mean, that's pretty darn close. So there's also a video game that came out in 2015, a, a shooter video game called Hotline Miami 2, wrong number, <laughs> where one of the characters is an unhinged, violent Miami police homicide detective named Manny Pardo, who uses his authority to go on violent rampages and get away with it. And then over the course of the game, he's gradually revealed to be a serial killer dubbed in the press as the Miami mutilator who investigates his own crimes. So that's either pretty way, great though. I mean, that's, I don't know. I think that's pretty creative. Some people. Yeah. I, I think this story is crazy. If you Google this guy, he looks insane. <laughs> He's got those big like bug eyes and big head, big hair. And he was just on his rampage. So I definitely think he was an inspiration. It, it It's interesting because we're going to talk at the end here about people who were then inspired by Dexter. And that that's a whole other thing. So that's you have inspiration exactly. for and then inspiration on the other end. There was also, I saw some articles saying that the Trinity killer that was played by John Lithgow and Dexter was uh, inspired by or sort of, yeah, I guess inspired by uh, BTK with the way that he committed his crimes. I don't remember enough about that season, although I, I remember it was really good. It was, That was a really good season, and partially because John Lithgow was such a fantastic actor, but also how disturbing his crimes were. 
Like, right. He killed just, him three days, right. He always killed a mom, a daughter, and a son. Right. Yeah, you know, sort of this what we would call repetition compulsion, playing the same thing out over and over again and yeah. making I think if I remember like the the little boy, the son, he would like make him wear a certain set of pajamas and play a certain game and eat a certain type of food. That's right. And then he would make the mom, he would force the mother to walk off, like jump off a building backwards. Like he oh. would basically hold a gun to her head. If, 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 Do you remember something like that? Yeah. It was crazy. But like that would have been interesting because that's way... So that what was that season three? So that's two thousand eight, two thousand nine. No, maybe a little bit later. Yeah, maybe it's two thousand ten. So that's before they had any idea who BTK was, right? Was it only season three? I don't. Well, know it's what... remember who he kills. He kills Dexter's wife. Right, Rita. Rita. Yeah. And I that didn't that happen was... until at least season three. Yeah, no, definitely. I thought it was maybe a little later on. And I don't know. I don't know about the timing there. But the fact that he kills families and sort of indiscriminate about, you know, he doesn't have like one type of victimology. And then just kind of this plain guy that isn't very remarkable in any way. Um, those are some of the comparisons that they were saying to BTK. But I don't know. Well, well, I mean, you know, look, I mean, and I don't mean this, I don't mean to be disparaging because I think John Lithgow is a brilliant actor, but he's a big doughy guy. And well, Dennis yeah. Rader was a big doughy guy, right. you know, like big sort of baby Huey type looking, you know, that like a big imposing person, but doesn't particularly seem threatening. Right. So exactly. unremarkable. Hang on. I'm going to look at what season that was. I loved all the people that were playing his family members too. And when you, you think that he sort of created this version of the all American family and Dexter at one point is like having dinner with them or something. And you realize how messed up the family is like he's the mother sees Dexter talking to her daughter and interprets it as if Dexter he was comforting her, so he puts his hand on her arm. The mom sees it, and instead of the mother going, hey, you don't know my daughter. Don't touch my daughter. She comes over and says, you know, if, if you're going to be doing those kind of things, we just really need to be careful about it because my husband can get really mad, and we just don't want to get him mad. Oh, that's like, so creepy. Whoa, weird have a dynamic. Great memory, by the way. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so it was season four. Yeah, it would have been 2010. BTK was caught when? Um, 2005. So it fits. That's interesting. Yeah. I like that. Could work. Could work. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, let's take a little break and then we'll come back and talk about vigilanteism. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this fantastic show on the Crawl Space Media Network. We want to talk to you about another show on the Crawl Space Media Network. You got to subscribe to Crawl Space. Crawl Space is a true crime and mystery podcast hosted by the creators of Missing Maura Murray, which happens to be us. That's right, Tim. It's you and I. We also host Crawl Space. It runs the gamut of the true crime genre, and we try to apply our deep dive investigative techniques into cold cases and missing person cases like Brianna Maitland, Brandon Lawson. We also discuss the mystery of Suitcase Jane Doe, the Colonial Parkway murders, 
and a number of other cold cases, mysteries, and just strange occurrences. And we also converse with experts in the field of criminal psychology, law enforcement, and crime media. Want to know how to catch a liar? Or what it's like to wear a wire and get a confession from a juror in your son's wrongful murder conviction? Crawl Space has it. Want to know what it's like to escape a serial killer just by happenstance? We got that too. So go ahead and check out Crawl Space. Subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app right now. There's no reason to wait. Do it now. 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 All right. We're back. We're going to talk about vigilanteism in our episode here about the real life Dexter. And what do we know about vigilantes, Scott? Well, once again... We pick a subject that I, you know, only know a bare surface of it. And then to go and find out that there's actually some real research being done in this area, some of which I think is a little bit more triggering for me, which is kind of a, an ironic term to use as we go through it. But um, so a vigilante is what I want to talk about is I want to talk about like what the definition of the term is and then what the research has, has revealed about the motivations and the personalities of these individuals that engage in these acts. A vigilante is an individual or a group of individuals that are self-appointed enforcers of sometimes actual law, but generally arbitrary laws in their community. So vigilantes act without any actual legal authority, generally because legal agencies are thought to be inadequate and they don't seek that out because they don't feel like their needs are going to get met or maybe they feel like that law enforcement has dropped the ball. And that's how every vigilante movie goes, right? Like Absolutely. Investigation goes cold or it's not moving fast enough or they don't have enough evidence. And I think what makes it interesting about why those stories are so compelling is because the story of the vigilante almost everybody can everybody can relate to having something happen and feeling frustrated at either the pace at which the resolution of that incident is taking or the end result is that nothing gets done right to resolve that you know whether it's a minor issue or it's the examples of you know when we see interviews with parents about missing children and the, you know, the trail has gone cold and they feel that the authorities aren't doing anything, and which may or may not be true. Maybe the authorities aren't doing anything or maybe the trail has just run cold and there's nothing else to work with at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And on the other hand, like the thing that makes it more difficult is that you see examples in the media of these people that won't give up. And they do it for 20, 22, 23 years, like on a single case, and they end up finding the killer or solving the crime. So on one hand, we're actually, I mean, that's not violent vigilante justice, but we applaud people for being persistent about their efforts to rectify these situations. So that's why I think we get kind of a mixed feeling when we hear these stories. So look, to legitimize their actions, whether they're lawless or not, vigilantes argued that their ends justify their means. So it presents as a real paradox. The activity exists outside the bounds of an official policing or a legal system, but its conceptual core is very conservative leaning. So vigilantes regard themselves as standing up for a mainstream moral code, although their own actions more times than not put them outside the parameters of law. 
So they think they're doing the right thing. And it's like, well, of course, we'd have to break some rules in order to get the right, right thing. This, this is for the greater good, which is very interesting huh. talking about sort of mindsets of conservative versus non-conservative of like the greater good as opposed to individual. So yeah, the mental twisted to get to uh, why it's okay for you to do this. Absolutely. Some real mental gymnastics. So, you know, when we think about how this is presented in the media, in movie movies and television, uh, reporting these depictions, it taps into a basic human desire to right the wrongs that people have suffered and the direction to righting that wrong is preferably by our own hand, you know, and it's very common. Like you think about people who tend to be frustrated and highly anxious have those sort of stereotypical arguments in the shower. Like they have play arguments in the shower. And then I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to say that, and I'm going to put my finger in his face, which is actually sort of a, a somewhat to an extent healthy way of dealing with overwhelming emotions. Mm-hmm. But that's when we're talking about vigilante action, which is going forward with that violence, that's not a healthy way of expressing the anger or the frustration or the rage or the trauma at all. Yeah. So, in fact, interesting to take it back around to the example of The Punisher, especially in the most recent iteration of The Punisher for Netflix that was done for Marvel. And I did not even like that actor because he played such an asshole in Walking Dead, and he completely won me over on Punisher because he was so good. But the thing they did about his origin story in this reboot or this retelling for television is that he had major trauma and a head trauma. Oh, really? Yes. They explained that. So they laid some real believable groundwork for what, you know, impacted his impulsivity. So I highly recommend it. In the, the media versions of, of vigilante stories, it always seems to be, you know, it usually someone's loved one is killed. Right. And it, it, it's always very, um, a position that we could all see ourselves in, you know, like wrong place, wrong time. Um, I even think of, um, uh, ghost, you know, like yes, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore and um, just strolling home from going to see a play or after dinner, you know, and wrong place, wrong time sort of thing, which makes us again, sort of like Dexter, right? Like we get pulled towards the character and the emotion of the, the surviving victim and sort of step into their shoes of what would I do or how would I react to this? And I think we all sort of when we consume true crime, think of that every once in a while. How would how would I um, act if I were the parent of a child that was killed or, you know, on and on and on. Right. And, and the, like the problem it. is, yeah, and the, the problem inherent in that is that we have a legal system that for the most part does what it's supposed to do, although there there are certainly some systemic problems. There's institutionalized problems that need to be addressed. But compared to some other places in the world, we do really, really well. But it rarely moves at the speed that people want it to, especially in American culture. You know, American culture is I want what I want and I want it right now. 
And that's what our media teaches us to be. It's what our culture teaches us to be. And that comes in direct conflict with, you know, I sit across at work. I sit across from two detectives that are constantly having to explain people to people that are calling them, sir, ma'am, this is how it goes. This is the procedure and we have to follow procedures. And I know that, I mean, over and over again, they have to explain you know, that this is the way things go and that they have to, you know, manage their expectations. And I think that's very, certainly it's very hard to hear when you're on the receiving end of that information. But it needs to be methodical so we're not scooping up the wrong people and innocent people. Right, because that's what happens, especially with vigilantes. And we've got a couple of examples of that. So the psychology of vigilantism, I think because vigilantism rather than vigilanteism, because that'd be two eyes, so vigilantism. I'm going to stick with that. The psychology of vigilantism is generally underscored by feeling of um, being marginalized or being victimized. And one of the researchers that's well-known in this area, Dr. S. uh, David Bernstein, states whether or not other people agreed that this victimization was occurring is actually irrelevant. The individual is clearly experiencing it as real. So I think that's another thing that it's, you know, sort of this personal experience that may or may not parallel with objective truth in many cases. Right. So vigilantes are strongly influenced by their own internal expression of attribution theory. And attribution theory asserts that when an individual attempts to understand the behaviors of another by attributing or assuming that one thing is being caused by another thing, event, person, et cetera. So... A vigilante believes that they understand the feelings, beliefs, and the intentions of another person or another entity as the source of that person's motivation. And that can be very incorrect. You can have a very incorrect assumption about why somebody else is doing something. So the vigilante has judgments on those supposed motivations based on their own internal processes. Mm -hmm. So they can see themselves as the law or superior to the law or disdaining of the law. So the vigilante perceives his actions as a response to the behavior of someone who has committed a wrongdoing, which is an external cause, rather than being the result of some personal characteristic or quality, which is an internal thing. So someone may have committed a crime, but why are they committing? Why is that person stealing food? Why is that person selling drugs? Well, they may be selling drugs because that's the only way they can support their family. Exactly. So it just immediately it immediately goes into a more complex computation than the person on the outside can comprehend. The person on the outside, that vigilante is, this is all wrong, all bad. I'm going to take take advantage of, or I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to clean up the streets. Right. And to not conceptualize that those individuals could change at some point and not do that anymore. So right. then we have your guy, Philo, who did all that killing and then becomes a born again Christian and is living crime free that we know of right now. So he changed. He allows himself that latitude. Right. But he didn't allow his victims that latitude. That's a, right. yeah, that's a great observation. You have this cognitive piece you're talking about, the attribution theory, as well as just as any of us would be if we were victims, becoming mo- emotionally hijacked because we're victims of something. Right. So those. Or feel that we're victims of it. Right. Or, yeah. Or perceive victimization. Right. 
So now there's an, a niche, another one that I, I'm going to have to really do a dive on this guy because he's written a lot. This is Dr. Donald Saussier. Um, he's a psychologist at Kansas State University, and he has written about a parallel phenomenon called social vigilantes. And basically, he's using that as sort of uh, a metaphor for the derogatory term of social justice warriors. Um, which I have a real problem with because we need to stop using that term in the way we do do because it's demeaning and dismissive of the actual institutionalized social problems that we have that need to be addressed. So just because you have a small part of the population that gets triggered about something, that's not representative or respective of the second order and third order changes that need to occur in our society. But right. I, I did like his quote, so and I, and I do want to say that I need to read more into it. He has some very interesting writings on male honor, which I'm interested in since my dissertation was about um, male role norm. But social vigilantes, on the other hand, display a particularly pernicious variety of runaway egoism in which they are convinced that their personal views should be imposed on everyone. Social vigilantes believe that they are acting on behalf of society to enforce correct ways of thinking and and behaving, much like the vigilantes of the Old West believe that they were acting on behalf of their community and society by enforcing their view of the law. So (laughs) on the surface, I think that's a very interesting statement. Um, and I don't know in uh, Huntington Beach right now. <laughs> right. Or if we want to flip it, we could say, let's let's talk about like a, a extremely, extremely conservative religious organization. I mean, isn't mm-hmm. that what what they want to do is they want to they want to impose their moral code on yeah, people as I, well? Yeah, I think so. But I, I could just take, you know. The person, the the restaurant owner in Orange County down here that I saw in the news last week, who's like, yeah, I know we're not allowed to have outdoor dining, but whatever, I'm going to stay open. And then is complaining on the news that the, um, you know, the authorities came in and and shut him down. He's not speaking for everybody to say that the way he's acting is on behalf of you know, he's not fighting my fight, but he thinks right. he is. <laughs> he thinks he is. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. He's, um, the, he's, uh, what is the, he, you know, he's, uh, sees himself as, uh, you know, someone that is in by keeping his, by flouting those rules, he is fighting tyranny in a yes. way. Right. So there's some more stuff that I thought was interesting. Dr. Saussier also says that social vigilantes go beyond believing that their views are correct, which we all do, to explicitly trying to propagate their beliefs. And that social vigilantes regard the mere expression of beliefs or attitudes that are contrary to their own as akin to a social crime and must be prevented if possible and punished should it occur. I think that's a very interesting supposition, and I want to read more into it um, because he certainly writes well and he's very well published, but I'm going to have to see how I feel about that. But back to our more mundane and interesting view of vigilanteism is one of the things that his research does pull up, which is fascinating, is that uh, vigilantes that have been analyzed or evaluated in a clinical setting score very high in dogmatism. So very concrete beliefs and very high in reactance. It's the idea that you have a perception that someone is taking away something from you. And generally, that's an incorrect assumption. But it's this idea of that's because someone has taken something that was in your purview 
away from you or claimed it as their own. You may not have any value to it, but since it's been taken away from you, it now has this enormous value to you that you are reacting to that perceived right. uh, Those withdrawal. Those are such a, a interesting combination. The right. Dark- um, and then this, just the really concrete thinking. And then when that thing happens, I must absolutely react and, um, you know, to sort of feel like it's balanced again or to, I have to write that. it. Yes. I have to write this. Like, and we think about it, like I, in a way, Ted Kaczynski is a yeah. vigilante, right? Like yeah. he had this manifesto that says that these people who are at the forefront of tech, they are the ones who are destroying our world. And it's my job to go and show the world for, you know, take them out and show the world that, that I'm right. You know, it's right. very interesting on that level. So there's also groups that are vigilantes and there are some that do some really interesting stuff. I find the work that Anonymous has done Mm-hmm. Uh, has been fantastic, and it's not a formal group. Um, Anonymous is back. It had disappeared for a while after uh, two or three of the the main people that had been connected for this very ac- otherwise loosely connected organization. They were arrested and put in prison for some things that they had done. But Anonymous is, um, we would call them activists and hacktivists because a lot of what they do is breaking into computer systems. There's no single primary goal for this group, and anybody that believes in the ideas of Anonymous can join, and they have been responsible for many of the quote-unquote attacks, including operations against uh, the Church of Scientology, the Ku Klux Klan, many, many child pornography sites, and several foreign entities, foreign governments they've broken into when those governments have a pretty strong record of oppressing people. For various reasons, like they broke into several government agencies in countries that were engaged in significant religious oppression. So very interesting. So they do some some work that I it's it's on the outskirts of you know legality, but like isn't it interesting because my attribution, like I am sure. having that cognitive attribution because I'm like, well, these guys are not like the violent ones. They're right, they're, they're taking care of people. So when we talk about cyber attacks, okay, it's not a real violent attack, but it can be hugely damaging. But like you're saying, we have visceral reactions to child pornography sites or the KKK or the Church of Scientology, maybe. And um, when when legal roads to getting those entities to take responsibility for things that they've done or get them shut down if there's certain sites that are harmful just don't ever seem to result in uh, justice. We kind of say, okay, maybe a cyber attack here and there. Uh, we can sort of look the other way. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> I, that's yeah, we're having, I think, what would be considered normal reactions. Um, you know, <sighs> It's interesting because then they, after they had gone after porn sites, that led me to the discovery of another organization that focuses a lot on child endangerment and sex trafficking, and that is Creep Catcher. And Creep Catcher is a loosely organized network of groups or chapters that are across Canada, and their goal is to identify and publicly shame adults that seek sexual encounters with children. And um, this one gets wonky in that way of they are casting their net really far and wide 
and they don't have the training of law enforcement to rule out some of the people that are there by accident, which absolutely can happen. Um, but they even go further because they are setting up sort of uh, to catch a predator type things, but, you know, like with less background checks. Yeah. So they lure adults into online relationships with somebody who's posing as a minor. And then when they organize a face-to-face meeting, Creepcatcher uh, documents the meeting via video and audio recording, and then they make it public. So they don't give it over to the police. They just make it public. But, uh, you know, the, the problem is, is that, once again, it's not organized. It's not working with a, a legal law enforcement agency. And there's a lot of fallout and collateral, collateral damage. Like one guy that was found to be guilty that in their consideration of engaging in this relationship that he was lured into uh, killed himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, in Edmonton, Canada. And then one of the organizers of that organization actually became overwhelmed with what he was doing and he killed himself. So um, what's mm-hmm. another one? Oh, another example is that there was outrage at the exposure of one of them and three other vigilantes kidnapped this alleged child perpetrator kidnapped him, beat him, and cut off his thumbs. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, it's outside the bounds of the parameters of law enforcement that are keep to keep that are there to keep those things from happening. So let's look it, at the... It con- just go off the rails quickly. There's no accountability or system to it. Right. That's what it is. It just goes off the rails because it's a, nobody's holding each other accountable for what's going to happen. And I, you know, you get into, especially like a group of three, it's more than just two. It's like, you're all in this bubble that you create about we're doing the right thing. We're taking out the wrong people or or we're taking out the bad people. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that the research articles that come up, we're going to link to this at our um, notes, which is so great. The common features of the vigilante activity. So um, it looks like there's seven features that are common to vigilantes, and they're usually, the activities are planned and premeditated. They're conducted by private citizens who participate voluntarily, nobody's being made to, and they act autonomously, but they're usually influenced by social unrest or social issues or things that are happening in the culture at the time. So they're at the, sort of at the whims of the zeitgeist that is occurring. Uh, they often use threats of harassment, violence, and force. And activities tend to surge up when an established or expected order is deemed inadequate. So what are we seeing, you know, in, in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse? You yep. know, this this uh, young person decided that he did not approve of the riots and that he needed to do what he was going to do, including obtaining an illegal weapon, crossing state lines, and killing and killing two people, wounding one. Yep. That's exactly who I thought of at the top of this. Session. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it just fits all of this, right? And it's the excuse that's often used is to control crime or other social infractions. And the targets of the vigilantes are alleged perpetrators of a crime. And once again, going back to our legal system here in the States is you are not guilty until proven innocent. You are guilty until proven otherwise. And that's the way our system works. 
So when we mess with the system like this, like these individuals who feel that they have a hero complex or, you know, a narcissistic complex or a grandiosity about their decision-making process, it, it clearly it gets messy very quickly. So uh, vigilantes often use social media to shame their targets. And uh, one of the things that is a phenomenon that's occurring now is that when things go viral and they get more likes, it then spurs them to do even more. What we were talking about earlier, that behavioral drift, where someone can continually evolve towards behaviors that are way outside the parameters of what they would even have considered acceptable previously. That's such a interesting thing for this day and age that this online activity can sort of light more fire behind this because of the whole psychology around, you know, getting dopamine hits from seeing likes and seeing yeah. people latch onto it and seeing it go viral, how that can be intertwined here with vigilante activity. Yeah, absolutely. So when they broke down the motivations of the vigilante beyond, you know, the commonalities, the research here is really important because the behaviors of the vigilante depend on several key factors, the characteristics of the person themselves, the environmental context of the activities that they engage in. And if that vigilante identifies with either the target of the vigilante behaviors, so if they identify in some way with the victim or with already with others who are committing vigilante activities, that is immediate spike and possibility of violence. Isn't that interesting? So you would think this, you would think the latter certainly, but not necessarily the former. You would say, oh, well, the group peer pressure of like, oh, look what everybody else is doing. I'm going to yeah. join in this. But I think what they're talking about in that firmer point is that if someone is triggered by something that they may have a drive to or they may have committed in the past or may have been a victim of themselves, they have transference, to use a, yeah. a site term, and then they act on that when they um, engage in these activities. I'm starting to think that there's probably a huge difference between just like the lone vigilante and then these groups that we're talking about. Because Clearly. Think, oh, yeah. You know, there's going to be, uh, it, it's usually a personal victimization or injury with the the lone vigilante rather than kind of this societal or social justice or whatever beliefs, you know, these groups are trying to change or target. Uh, it, I think that's probably really needs to be parsed out in the research at some point. I think so, too. I think the commonality there would be a, a sense of, like the low, I mean, I would think it'd be interesting and I'm going to make a sort of a supposition that, or I'm going to theorize without any data that the individual actor has had a personal experience, mm -hmm. you know, has been bullied or has been victimized and may or may more likely to have had an actual victimization as opposed to the people that act out in groups. Right. Because it's a bonding situation and they are, they feel victimized by the world rather than individual slights. And can feel more empowered to actually take action. So there's the whole like group dynamics. Right, that group dynamics. Problem. Yeah, and the bravado that comes from being in a group that's like, hell yeah, we're going to do yeah. this. We're going right. to take those bad people out. When we look at the five internal drives or motivations, there are 
is it five? One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, six. Uh, we have, they have a lack of trust in the justice system. So if the justice system is perceived as being ineffective or just unable to take care of what needs to be taken care of, vigilantes will then be motivated to invoke their brand of justice or what they perceive to be justice in order to compensate for that, that deficit. Uh, they want to sanction a wrongdoing. They want to deter repeat offenses. So they're motivated to impose punishments in, in an effort to stop the wrongdoer from recommitting the offense, which is working in corrections. That's not how it works at all. I, every time works. my husband like honks at someone who's driving like an idiot, I'm like, do you really think you just taught them a lesson and they're never going to do it again? Right. Does it make you feel better? Or do you think you taught them a lesson? <laughs> what does he say when, what does he do? Does he turn to you and go, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, he got his little dopamine. He got his little dopamine bump by slamming on the um, horn, I think. <laughs> So uh, going on with those factors, deterring others from committing a wrongdoing. So they fear that others might commit a wrongdoing. So that motivates them to uh, preemptively punish the person, almost like sort of 1984 thought crimes. This is a person that we think is going to do this because they're kind of squirrely in other ways. So I'm going to act out in... um, in expectation of that. And then also there's, once again, going back to that external locus of control, craving for someone to blame. And Mm -hmm. vigilantes generally struggle with these perceived injustices, and they will seek out an alleged perpetrator to identify and place that blame. They want a lightning rod to be the recipient of their anger and frustration. And then also... In today's world, it's the bump of the social media status. So, you know, in some ways, when we talk about mass shooters like uh, the Ila Vista, Elliot Rogers, you know, he felt that the world was against him. And he knew that he was going to be, he had a manifesto. He knew that he was calling a lot of attention to himself and perpetrating those crimes. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened among a small po- percentage of population in that community. They do really revere him as someone who accomplished his goal. Yep. Mm. Wow. So the problems, you know, with vigil- being a vigilante is there's always a potential for, to be completely off base about who your victim is, who you think they are. There's such inaccuracy happening. And law enforcement doesn't like it <laughs> because it gets in the way. Right, it's like we don't yeah. need people in here muddying up our uh, our investigations. Now, I wanted to, and I wanted to, to wrap it up with a couple of quotes from Dr. Stephen Rochefort, uh, who is a Canadian psychologist in Alberta, who has a great page on this that will be in our notes as well. And he talks about sort of the pros and cons of vigilantism. Vigilantism can be seen as a cure for ineffective law enforcement and justice systems. I think it's important here that he says it can be seen. Right. Doesn't mean it is, but that's how people perceive it. Vigilantism can also be considered a social movement that regulates social norms and expectations. But despite these benefits, there are challenges that arise. It can result in serious implications for the justice system. Vigilantes often do not understand the rules of due process or evidence. And as a result, their activities may compromise a fair trial, lead to wrongful convictions, or this, and this I think is super important, can cause a mistrial for someone who is a serious offender. 
So yep. basically you can completely undo your goal by muddying the waters and getting in the way. You can cause a mistrial. Um, so when is it justified and can it exist within the law and order of society today and can it be conducted safely? I think that's a big question. I think in some ways uh, anonymous does that. Mm-hmm. There are some that do. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all their things, but man, they've, they've doxed some very bad people. I have very mixed feelings about that because that can inspire other people that are less regulated to go and act out. Right. You know, like when we look at QAnon, there's a guy that went and shot, uh, you know, a crime boss, knocked on his door, the guy opens the door, shoots him point blank in the chest, and he feels completely justified in doing what he did. And, you know, at his trial, he holds up his hand and there's a Q written in ink. Yeah. He feels like he did the right thing. Yeah, sure does. And uh, that's how off the rails it can go with people, especially that are, you know, maybe more psychologically disturbed. It, You know, these aren't just all like nerds and highly intelligent people sitting behind a computer. These, when we're talking about the the psychological makeup here, I mean, this can tap into a lot of people that are struggling with mental health and that have some obstacles in front of them. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just keep going back to the, the dogma and uh, what was it? The, what was the other piece to that? Uh, it was dogmatic oh, reactance. and reactance. Yeah. Reactance. Yeah. Um, the, the reactance, that impulsiveness, you know, that's what we find with, just so many types of repeat offenders and career criminals and violent offenders is they're not able to sit on it and just think, how can I write this wrong in an appropriate way? It's just reacting. Right. Um, Yeah. So it's interesting how many movies there are uh, about vigilantes. It's it's actually way more common than I thought. And, you know, it can be sort of an overlay into so many motivations in uh, dramatic presentations. But off the top of your head, can you think of one that's your favorite? Um, I'm looking at your list here. <laughs> uh, gosh, Hard Candy was so good. Hard Candy was freaking phenomenal. And if you oh have not, God. it was such a small movie. I don't I even know. know if it got a theatrical release, but it was fantastic. And probably the first thing I ever saw Elliot Page in. Elliot, I mean, I mean I've always liked Elliot when when he was in the Marvel series as yeah. uh, Kitty Pride. Um, and by the way, let's all give a shout out to Elliot for yeah. successfully beginning his transition. And yeah. good for him. He's a brave yeah. guy and yeah. a, a brilliant actor. So I can't wait to see what he does beyond this. Yeah. That was a good one. It was hard to watch, but it was good. Really um, hard to watch. But there's, yeah, there's there's a ton. So uh, I think what you said, you made a really good point, though, about there's definitely times when mental health issues come in. You know, Elliot's motivation as the young young woman certainly was revenge, may have been revenge, but you got the feeling more that it was revenge for somebody else. Right. that she knew rather than herself. Right. Like sort of prevention of future offenses, like you were talking about. Right. So yeah, there's a mental health issue to that making sort of uh, 
very concrete assumptions about what's right and wrong. But when we have something like taxi driver, taxi driver is clearly an individual who is decompensating. He is breaking down into, you know, just uh, these primal drives and clearly from the beginning has really poor social skills. Sure. There's a lot that's presented there to help us understand. Falling down is another one. Falling down is someone that has been evolving into a violent episode for many years. So it's not that he's snapped. He's been on this road for a long time. Literally, L.A. traffic will do that to you. Seriously, it's the truth. V for Vendetta, now that you're talking about vigilante groups. Yeah. Right? Wasn't there a movie, Vigilante, with oh, yeah. Eddie Foster? Yeah. 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 Oh, most of the movies are about singular vigilante. Yeah, and probably the most famous one. I mean, like, you don't really think of Travis Bickle, which is uh, Robert De Niro's character in Taxi Driver. We don't really think of him as a a vigilante, although he thought of himself as a vigilante in that. But the classic one is a 1970s movie called Death Wish. And it fits basically, it was a hyper, hyper violent film for movies at the time. Charles Bronson plays a man whose wife and daughter had been just brutally, brutally, is it his daughter too? I'm blanking. I know his wife was horribly raped and murdered. And then he goes on this spree to get the killers and what happens. And this was also portraying a period of time in New York where New York was, had a very high crime rate and was very gritty. But what they did was they showed that he became this anti-hero for the population and other people started acting up and like, there's a group of construction workers. And when they see a guy mug an old lady and take her purse, the construction workers just pile on him and kick the shit out of him. And then they're later on being interviewed and they're like, he fell down. I don't know what happened. He just fell down, (laughs) you know? Right. Kick ass is a great one. Kick ass is like a really dark comedy with some brilliant, brilliant, uh, screenwriting and brilliant, uh, violent, uh, fight choreography that I loved. I thought was amazing although somewhat realistic as far as how much bo- how much uh, damage a human body can take. But many of our superhero tropes do the same thing. We have, I have been a Green Arrow fan since I was in fourth grade. And to, for Stephen Amell to play this Arrow character for seven seasons, I think it was seven seasons on the CW, was really cool because he's like a, a, a hipper Batman. You know, he's not super powered, but has these skills that are honed and he is trying to make all the corrupt city officials pay for the damage that they've done to his city. Mm-hmm. But we, he's an anti-hero in that and we admire him. Batman is a traumatized vigilante and we admire him for that. But yeah. that's probably one of the problems is that many of these people who take on the vigilante role do identify with someone who is like Batman or Green Arrow, you know, which is not really realistic. You're not a billionaire. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I would love to know the um, if any studies have been done on how they sort of think that others perceive them. Like, well, well you know, if, even if I'm a vigilante and I stay in the shadows and do my thing, would other people applaud what I'm doing? Do they... Does, you know, like that. Some people would, though, right? That far down the road. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have to be, like, really careful because you, like, if you're doing, you know you're evaluating somebody like that and you're like, well, what do you think people think of it? I think a lot of people really care for like, I don't, and I don't care about the people that don't. 
Yeah. Because I've got these 20,000 followers on Instagram that say, yeah, go do it. Go do it. Gosh. You know? Jeez. Oh, um, so I'm just to wrap us up. I'm going to talk about a few crimes inspired by Dexter. Oh, cool. Um, so Mark Twitchell is probably one of the most um, infamous, I guess we would say, that sort of fits into this category. So he was a Canadian filmmaker who killed John Altinger in 2011. And he did lure another victim. He lured both of his victims via plenty of fish. Um, But his second victim actually escaped. And he was a big devoted fan of Dexter, Mark was, and would talk about it all the time. He even posted as Dexter on Facebook, like he had an account where he was pretending to be the character Dexter. He made a short film called House of Cards, which was a spoof about Dexter. And he wrote a story entitled SK Confessions, Serial Killer Confessions, which began with the following statement, quote, the story is based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. His diary was found after his arrest, after he killed Mr. Altinger. It read that his kill room was perfectly prepped. He talked about having plastic sheeting taped together around his table, a large green cloth screwed into the drywall ceiling to shield the view of it from his guest's line of sight and to shield him, of course, as well. He says, quote, I stood, I now stood, but a few feet away from the front door, which I had locked, of course. The plan was to wait in the shadow of my curtain until he approached the door and shock him with the stun baton, followed by a sleeper hold that would sap away his consciousness so that I could tape him up and set him up on my table. So let me ask you, so so he's identifying with Dexter, but he's not, he doesn't have a vigilante drive. Like he's not trying to right any wrong, right? No, he doesn't. Um, The investigators suspect that he wanted to kill someone and possibly kill multiple people. Obviously he, they think he was going to with this other victim um, so that he would have uh, more experience for a serial killer movie that he was writing. So there's that's, definitely, because that's motivation. what you do. Yeah. <laughs> a different motivation, but he took Dexter as, the person that was going to teach him how to kind of follow through with murder more than I'm a vigilante. That's very interesting. Cause that sounds somewhat delusional. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, like severely personality disordered, but there's that grandiosity. Like I'm, oh, yeah. I'm yeah. identifying with this fictional character. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, then there was also Mark Howe. He was a 21 year old care provider in England and in 2013, He wanted to smoke pot, but his mom, Katrina Wardle, told him that he could not. So he stabbed her 53 times in the head, uh, throat, and chest. He had spent all of his time generally playing video games and became obsessed with Dexter Morgan from the television show. He, before killing his mom, he researched the knives that Dexter used. He researched how to buy a kill bag or organize a kill bag online. And he became so obsessed with knives that he would he would buy them and collect them. And then when he would get angry with his mom, he would stab things in his room to take out the rage against her. So he, after he murders his mom, he 
doesn't really know what to do with himself. So he tells a friend online that he killed someone. The friend doesn't believe him. So he sends a picture of bloody shoes to the friend. Hmm. And then he kind of wanders to a couple of the care facilities where he works and just openly admits to a colleague that he killed his mother. So, I mean, this was obviously, <laughs> this is not vigilanteism either, but someone who was over-identifying with this character and just violent tendencies in general. And then a woman, Jessica Lynn Lopez, she was Ooh, part of I remember that one. a few people. Yeah, because it was here in Southern California. Yeah. She was a, a part of a group that killed this young woman in 2012 in the Riverside area. Um, a young woman named Brittany Kilgore was murdered by... A uh, former Marine Staff Sergeant and his two female roommates, and one of those roommates was Jessica Lynn Lopez. And after they murdered her, she fled and went to a hotel room where she was caught and had attempted to die by suicide, but wasn't successful to that. But in her, she confessed to her part of the murder, and she said, "Quote: It was as if my idol Dexter had spoken directly to me. I made a few attempts to chop her up like Dexter with a master's with master's power tools, but I was afraid it was too loud and it sucked at cutting flesh." So it's you know we don't have these true vigilantes that have been inspired by the series, but there's there's several more examples than just these three that I won't get into of people who are claiming that they were obsessed with the show or idolized Dexter and maybe even copied some of the stuff that he did to kill individuals um, in real life. Yeah. I would go out on a limb and say that they want to identify with sort of the ritual part of it. It's so interesting that like, and I'm certainly, I'm not advocating this for anyone, any budding psychopaths, but the kid collecting the knives you know, and, and putting together a kill bag is almost like cosplay, right? Yeah. Oh, sure. You know, so it's like, where where do you... Um, and I would also say he wasn't just letting his anger out by stabbing his things in his room. He was trying to intimidate and scare his mom, which is interesting because that's sort of not what Dexter was about. Dexter was like, this: I'm going to right a wrong or uh-huh. perceived wrong. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do it quiet. I'm going to cover my tracks. But the idea that like, it was as if my idol Dexter had spoken directly to me. I made a few attempts to chop her up. Like, that's just such a a, a very emotionally stunted perspective. Yep. Not yeah. delusional, but grandiose and stunted, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, yeah, it's very different than I was hearing Dexter's voice. <laughs> right, 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 right. That would have been an interesting defense. Yeah, exactly. But, um I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that there aren't people um, that are doing exactly what Dexter did that we know of. I don't know. Maybe they're good enough. But yeah, I think if we had looked into these three individuals' backgrounds, they probably would have been into a lot of other things that we could link to their violence. Well, Just what I would say is if there are them. people out there working like Dexter truly as he did, then we wouldn't know. Yeah. Right? True. Because he that was his one of his and, and, you know markers is that he was incredibly good about covering his tracks. Right. But he's the movie version of it. And it's like, that is very, I mean, God only knows, like, like I always used to laugh about like, as much as I love the show is like, damn, I don't ever want to go to Miami again. Like how many people, (laughs) how many bad guys is he killing? And he's there. 
What if I accidentally walk outside the store and I didn't buy something? I mean, clearly he only took out, you know, when they describe the people that he takes out, they all are, you know, people, right. Objectively very bad people. Right. Exactly. Okay. So I brought up the pronunciation of vigilante or vigilantism. Should I play it? Yes. Okay. Why didn't it play? Did you do it on YouTube? On the, is it something speaks? Damn it! No, I'm just on Google. Can you hear that? No. Can you? No, it must be a computer thing. Okay. So, what Doctor Shiloh and I just did was we like went on the Google and the YouTube uh, pronunciation. It is vigilantism. Oh, you can hear it in your yeah. Headphones? I can hear it. It's vigilantism. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay. It was You're like, good enough. You're smart enough. And by golly, people like you. Vigilantism. Damn it. Vigilantism. Right. Uh, just take that bite, like that sound clip of them speaking it correctly. And just, can you just dub that over every time I said, I'm just kidding. Well, also it's like a robot. She's like. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Vigilantism. Vigilant. Oh, that would be great. Vigilantism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. A happy uh, new year and um, please just like check in with us on social media, see what we're doing and we'll be around, but we truly hope the rest of 2020 is good and safe and healthy for you guys. And we can't wait to just start over and see what 2021 brings for us. Everyone, please be safe. Uh, The good news about the vaccines is really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm excited about it. I will be one of the ones that signs up to take it. I absolutely believe in the science of this and, um, but it's not magic. You still have to wear your mask. You still have to physically distance. Please don't let your guard down. Do it for the people you love. Do it for the people that love you. Please be careful and try and be kind. You know, I'm, I'm not the best at it. I get fed up with dumbasses. But I'm going to hold myself accountable to all the people that meet us here on this platform to try and be kind and and patient with people that just don't get it. So let's let's all try and do that. Um, have a Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Happy Hanukkah. This is like night number. This is the third yep. night of Hanukkah. Yep. And please join us. When you download this on Wednesday, please join us the next night if you're one of our Patreon members for our Zoom cocktail hour. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Take care, guys. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution license. Check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, 
and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash LA Not So Podcast. Until next time, folks. 